I've, I've enjoyed playing here. This has been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Royal Melbourne. This week, golf should be played. We love coming down under. Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf's been great, but the enthusiasm of the people has been the thing that's just been amazing. Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath and Victoria. Get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the sand belt, and I have so many great memories of being down there. Happy New Year and welcome back to Australian Golf Passport. I'm Scott Warren and joining me is Matt Mollica. G'day, Matty. Hi, Scott. Happy 2023. Indeed, mate. Uh, you have a good holiday break? Yeah, very good. Scooted up to Canberra, uh, went through country Victoria, weekend on the Mornington Peninsula, some golf in there. Didn't go quite as far afield as you, but had a good time. Yeah, did you, play, did you get any golf in? You just named a few places where you know you would like to take the clubs. Uh, not enough golf, but what I did play was good. How about you? I, I, well, frustratingly, I had two great games of golf the week before and then boxing day of, you know, around Christmas was playing great golf. Uh, haven't touched a club since. Yeah. So went to Fiji with the family for a week, which was sensational, but, uh, Denaru was going to cost me 220 Australian, including club hire. And that golf course and 220 Australian just, yeah. So I went and had pizza and beers and looked at the course a lot. Uh, took a non-golfing mate who went with us up to the driving range and hit some balls for a laugh. But no, I haven't touched a club since Boxing Day. So I'm, uh, I'm itchy. Yeah. Well, you've got New South Wales in great shape after it's just hosted the Australian Amateur. So Yeah, that was, it was great watching, um, watching some of the scores there and being made to feel better by it. There was one player who I won't name, uh, and this is just goes under the golf is hard, but over his three rounds at New South Wales, he managed to card every number between two and ten. So he oh, was wow. just a he was a hole in one away from getting you know one through ten. But yeah, golf golf's hard even on bluebird days in good conditions. Wow. Now, as far as we've got, we've got a big big guest to kick off twenty twenty three. Really excited to bring this chat to our audience. So we're going to forego news of the week. Indeed. And we're just going to get straight into it with Matt Goggin of Seven Mile Beach fame. Matt talks about his uh, development down there in Hobart, a little bit about uh, the adjoining course next door at Five Mile Beach. We have a bit of a chat to him about his own playing career. We really hope you enjoy listening to it all. We thank Matt so much for his generosity and, and his time. Wonderful to talk with him. Yeah, let's just get into it, shall we? Yeah, here's Matt. Welcoming in to start 2023, a special guest who's been very generous with some time for us today. Uh, coming to us from the USA, Matt Goggin. Welcome to Australian Golf Passport. Gentlemen, how you doing? Very, very well indeed. We talked about over the Christmas break, how do we want to start 2023 for the podcast? And we both agreed that if we could get you, that would be ideal. And then lo and behold, here you are. So we're very, very appreciative. Well, you, you obviously have very low ambitions for your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Just the opposite, Matt. I, I don't recall a course and probably the social media generation is part of this, but a course in Australia being developed that's been so hotly anticipated and followed breathlessly during its construction. Um, so I think you probably sell yourself short. I think the project that you're developing is, is something that is, you know, one of the main, the main focuses of Australian golf, particularly this year as it moves towards opening. Yeah. I think it's just the sign of the times really. I, I always think of like Sweetens Cove as kind of like the original influencer golf course, right? It was the first one that came right along when 
kind of Instagram and social media was becoming such a thing and they, they leveraged it so well. Um, once they, people started to go there and they started talking it up on social media, the course basically went viral. It's almost, um, it's like double-edged sword really because we're really excited and we love talking about the, the site and how, how good we think it can be, but you also don't want to you know, feel like you're overhyping it all the time. Um, but it is spectacular and, and I think because of the success of Barnboogle Dunes, I think, you know, Tassie Golf, you know, is, is an exciting future and it's an exciting prospect to have something in Hobart um, so close to the airport on just spectacular sand dunes. So we feel pretty privileged to have a, have a crack at it. I have a couple of questions about that, that risk of overhyping and how you manage that um, through construction. But, but first, I just want to jump off with a little bit, just generally, I guess, to introduce you to listeners who may not, who may not know you well or know your story well. Um, and we're speaking to you today from your home in the USA about a golf course you're developing in Hobart. Uh, how, how do you manage that, that distance and how do you separate your time between the two these days? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's not a lot I can do day to day because I'm, I'm not a golf course architect and I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a greenskeeper or anything like that. But a lot of what I did was the project managing, really, at the, at the beginning and, and even you know, every week now. But it was getting the permits in place and then dealing with all the, um, the things you have to do to get your start works permit with Clarence Council and having all the meetings with government and, and doing all those sorts of things. And, you know, you can go back and forth. It's, it's better if you're there. You can manage some of it. Obviously, after post-COVID, we've all become a little bit better at, at um, the Zoom meetings and, and not having to be face-to-face. But nothing beats a face-to-face meeting. So I go down every sort of six weeks or so and might spend a week down there or, um, or a couple of weeks and get as much done as I can in those few weeks and then, and then come back. But obviously, as it gets closer to opening, I'll be spending more and more time down there. Yeah. And do you see yourself splitting time between the two countries forever or is there, you know, a quiet retirement in Hobart on the horizon? Yeah, I'd love to live back in Hobart. Um, you know, I've got two two young or well, youngish kids, you know, 16 and a 15-year-old. So you kind of want to cherish the time you've got with them now because, you know, in two years' time or three years' time, I'll probably mm-hmm. never see you again or just to do some laundry or, you know, take them out for dinner when they're in college or whatever it is but uh yeah but i mean i I love hobart um every time i go back there it's amazing to me how much it's come on since i grew up there's just there's so many things to do there's so much world-class food and um you know bona museum and and now hopefully a world-class golf course it'll just be a perfect place to have a quiet retirement whereabouts in the u.s is home um charlotte north carolina yeah oh beautiful north carolina yeah okay yeah, I, I visit like, every, like everyone in like everyone in North Carolina. My local is a you know Donald Ross, allegedly. Yeah, <laughs> no, it yeah. is. Nineteen twenty nine. It was a, a Carolina golf club, which is a nice little club to play at. Oh, fantastic! Beautiful. I visited visited North Carolina uh, last April for the first time, and just I was that close to just ringing my wife and saying, "Load the kids up, pack the bags, sell the house. We live here now." It's <laughs> um, yeah, that really is a great part of the world. Yeah, it's even easy living, and there's some really good golf around here. And it's you know, as I said, it's very easy living. Climate's not too bad. Winters aren't too bad. But uh, you know, you'll miss the Australia. You'll, you'll miss too much of Australia if you come over here. Trust me. I was going to ask you this later about moving to the US when you started your career, but um, what what was it kind of socially and culturally, golf aside, that took the most adjustment 
moving to the States? Well, I mean, I, I guess you, you know, growing up in, in Australia, you kind of have this um, image of what America is and you feel like it's very similar, like, you know, similar food or fast foods or there's some sort of cultural things are the same, but it really is very different. And it, it is kind of funny that after you've lived here for whatever, you know, 20 years or so, but even five years in and, and the, the next crop of guys coming through Q school, how they just have the same complaints that you did. It almost becomes funny where it's just like, oh, okay, you're going to complain about the coffee. You're going to complain about people, you know, giving you too much attention or you're going to complain about the big cups of Coke or whatever it is. It's just like, it, it, it is kind of funny. It is kind of funny. But it, it is, even though it's very similar and we take a lot of cues from America, it's a, it's a very different lifestyle. Now, you obviously live in a good part of America for playing good golf um, and architecturally strong golf, but what do you what do you miss about Australian golf and Australian golf courses? I mean, I was lucky enough um, when I was in the Australian Institute of Sport to be based in Melbourne, and we we're all members of Sandbelt courses. So if you want to, I mean, I was at Yarra Yarra. Um, some people were at Metro. There was um, Huntingdale. Royal Melbourne, uh, Peninsula, back before it was, you know, PK or whatever. So there was always this opportunity to play these amazing golf courses and you just took it for granted. I mean, I was a member at Royal Hobart and when I did, um, when I finished school, I did a summer kind of working with Bruce Green at, at Royal Melbourne, just messing around in the pro shop, you know, not really doing anything, picking up range balls. And every night I'd go and play the composite course, just every night, just for something to do. Like I was a member at Royal Hobart, so I had reciprocal rights there. I was working there and it was in the middle of summer and I just played till dark. And I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, you're playing one of the greatest courses in the world every night and you're the only one there. I would literally be the only one playing. I might run into one member. It was insane how good it is. So yeah, I mean, golf much more, like the, the stories of golf being elitist. And it's funny when you get into these conversations, with people back home, it's like golf's not elitist in Australia. It's not even close to elitist. You want to, come across elite golf or elitist golf come to america i mean it, the country clubs are you know they're for the wealthy they're, they're not they're not you know when i was a junior at um royal hobart you know when it was the 16th ranked course in australia and it was you know royal this and pull your socks up it was still only 50 bucks you know a year to be a member there's no two hundred thousand dollar joining fee or hundred thousand dollar joining fee and this sort of stuff so it's just a different world so you re all the cliches about golf seem to be um, maximised or feel much bigger over here than when they are in Australia. Well, Australia golf in Australia feels very much more approachable and a lot more working class than it is here. Yeah. And so when you're chatting to mates over in the US and they sound you out about taking a golf trip to Australia, what are the handful of courses that you say you absolutely must play? I mean, I think Barnburgle Dunes is just such... The public courses are what is attractive, I think, because they're easy to get onto. Like you don't have to call in favours or, or know a member or any of that sort of stuff. So I always think a trip to Barnbeagle Dunes should always be on the list, even though, you know, you might, you know, you've got to do Royal Melbourne, obviously. I think, um, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm, I've, I've actually got some people who are looking at a trip recently. I'm like, well, you've got to do, you've got to do Barnbeagle and then you've got to do Royal Melbourne. And then, then after that, you know, it depends what you can get on, depends when they can let you on, all that sort of stuff. But they're sort of the must-do trips. Um, and then it's just it's working in all the other fun stuff around a trip. Oh, I'm going to do a couple of days in Sydney or I'm going to do a Melbourne, you know, come down to Hobart, all that sort of stuff. That's basically what I tell them. But 
I think you can't. I mean, if you're playing Royal Melbourne East and West, I mean, why would you play anywhere else? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just and the East, the East, as you say, the East is a completely different golf course to West and it sort of gets overlooked because it's the second course, but crikey, it's pretty damn good yeah. second course. Unbelievable. Yeah, the whole, the whole place is unbelievable. Talking about things unbelievable, you and your colleagues are building something that we suspect will be genuinely unbelievable. It's it, As Scott said at the outset of our chat, it's probably the most exciting project, uh, golf project in Australia in living memory. You're, you're getting to live out a fantasy that most golfers have focused on at some point, and that's that's building their own course. You've been, you've been familiar with this plot of land at Seven Mile Beach for a long, long time and had thoughts about it being home to a golf course for a long time. Do you remember when you first saw it? Yeah, I mean, it was with the Royal Hobart is, you know, as the quote profiles, probably five or six kilometers along the beach, if that. Um, and you used to be able to cut through the back of the airport. And when we were when we were kids and we couldn't, you know, you don't want to pull your socks up. You don't want to go upstairs. You're always in trouble. I mean, it was still a royal club after all. It wasn't, uh, you always felt like you're under the, um, uh, about, you know, a few seconds away from being put in front of the secretary manager's office. We used to go to this place called the Oasis, which was uh, which was like a burger joint. And if I showed you the building where it was, you wouldn't believe me. It's like this house and there's nothing there. I mean, it's at the back of the airport, basically. And there isn't anything within kilometres of this house. When I mean nothing, I mean, there's the airport and that's it. There's no other houses or anything. I don't even know what's there. Um, and there's the ranger station. But it's right at the sort of start of the thin slither of sand dunes, not the big ones where, where we're building the golf course. But we'd always have our burger and then go for a walk along the beach or go and hit balls along the beach or just mess around. And you'd always look around and think, wow, why isn't there a golf course here? Like, why is Royal Hobart not here? Why is Royal Hobart off the, off the beach and on the flat stuff, you know, about 600 metres from the beach? You know, it doesn't make any sense. And we'd all be like, you know, wouldn't it be awesome to build a golf course here? But... That was the first time I saw it, and I was probably 15 or so, 15 or 16. Um, and then, funnily enough, when Clates was talking about um, Barn Boogle Dunes, I remember I was playing at the Horizons in, like, the ANZ, so I don't know, when it was, like, a points tournament on the feed, on the Aussie Tour. So that would give you a rough idea of what the dates were. It was probably, like, 04, 03, maybe. Um, he... Uh, he was talking about building this golf course in Tasmania up in the northeast. I'm like, why? Why are you building a golf course way up there? This makes no sense. Like it's in the middle of nowhere, Bridport. Why don't you build? Why build one at Seven Mile Beach? Build one in there. It'd be amazing. Um, and then he showed me a few pictures of Barn Bugle Dunes, and obviously I was like, oh, this is pretty cool because like the holes were it was almost finished at that point. Had pictures on his laptop. I'm like, oh wow, that's incredible. Because um, I wouldn't didn't even think that 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 would exist in Tasmania either. Um, so that was sort of like the genesis of it all. And then, um, it was probably 10 years after that, where I just basically, um, put it all in motion and got Clates down there to have a look to see if I was crazy. And he was pretty impressed. It's been a long process, a long, long process. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's kind of like, you, you don't, it's not like we've been thinking about it all the time since then. It was, it was actually, there was, you know, talk about public golf courses and, them all closing and all that sort of stuff down in, in Australia and the sort of controversy that comes around that. Um, There's actually a nine-hole course. It was 18 holes, um, Rosney Golf Club, which is the only course in the city and it's the only um, the only course you can really access via public transport and it's the, it's the only public golf course in Hobart. And it was cheap 
we used to have all our school golf events there and all that sort of stuff. And it was coming up for new management um, for someone, the, the guy was retiring. So I had my foundation at the time and the idea was, uh, why don't we take it over and then create it as sort of a, an area where we could bring in kids who haven't had the best opportunities. It was almost like a Sweetens Cove before there was a Sweetens Cove. Like my idea was like, why couldn't you get someone in there and make Rosny much better than what it is? And then have kids that work on there and everyone has to train up kids and give them opportunities. And whether it's in greenkeeping or whether it's in back of house or front of house or management, all that sort of stuff. Um, and we'll run it through the foundation and it'll be, um, it'll be our home. And then we thought we were going to get the lease through the council. They picked um, the YMCA who ran the pool. Um, there, was, there was three people going for it. Two were people who had history in the golf industry and one ran a pool. The people that ran the pool got it. And uh, I kind of had a bit of a dummy spit and said to uh, Mike Craw at the time, I'm like, well, stuff it. We're just going to build a course at Seven Mile Beach. It'll be way better anyway. And it was a bit of a throwaway line. And then so we went down and had a look and sort of it was incredible. And then I said about trying to find out, well, there's got to be a reason why this hasn't happened, right? I mean, it just didn't make any sense. Like um, if you look at a night shot of Hobart and you see all the lights where people live and there's like this band going from Hobart all the way down the highway, Midway Point, Sorrel, down the main arterial out of the city past the airport. And then they scatter around north and south once they get across the water, sort of that looks across Five Mile Beach. Well, Seven Mile, the spit was just black. There's been no development there. And it really didn't make a lot of sense. Like Seven Mile Beach had houses on it. Um, why isn't there something there? So then I went about going through all the, you know, back through all the public documents and looking at all the developments that had been proposed and all the stuff that had been accepted that didn't get built. Or, and it really came down to um, sand mine and a bit of luck that a massive Japanese development didn't happen there. But there was always talk of things potentially happening there. So once I found out that there was no real reason, there was no um, ecological reason, there was no um, Aboriginal heritage reason, um, Once and the best land was outside the sand mine, I then went to the government showing the area that we were looking at and being very specific that we don't want to we don't want to impact on the sand mine. We have no interest in impacting on the sand mine. This is where we want the golf course to be. And then we got a, uh, you know, very bureaucratic thing. We got a non-exclusive development license that gave us the ability to um, pursue uh, a golf development, basically, which is kind of hilarious. It was like, so we went and pursued it and, uh, and here we are now. And that was, that was 2012. So it took a couple of years to even get to the DA stage and then um, and then another eight years before we really got started. Wow. Yeah. There's um there's so many there's so many points along such a long journey where something could happen to kill that project. You know, a lot of a lot of the big golf architects talk about the fact that for every course they've built, there's two that they were meant to and didn't and never happened. And I think it's one of those kind of serendipitous things that when you needed things to fall your way, they did. And when you needed, you know, a bit of luck or you needed, you know, the thumbs up to continue with the project, you did, you know, it's just remarkable that a project even gets to starting construction, given all of the hurdles yeah. and all of the things that happen over a decade and a half. 
it was really interesting actually because the area was zoned um, passive recreation, which meant a golf course was acceptable basically. That really you could um, you could just go and build a golf course there, and it wouldn't have to be publicly advertised and, or anything. It was just that it was the area was zoned to be that, which is you know remarkable. They've now since changed the zoning, which is another typical uh, bureaucratic move. <laughs> um, under the new planning scheme that they've just ratified, they just sort of switched it on us. So that's even makes it even weirder that no one even tried because like under the zoning, it was like, well, yeah, no, you could just go and do it, just talk to council and you wouldn't even have to have a, a vote, basically, a public hearing about it, which is was quite shocking, really. Um, but that's what the area was zoned. But once we got the permits, you know, a lot of the investors, we, there was also some housing involved. Um, that didn't get through. That required rezoning. But we got the permit and I basically was like, well, guys, we won. This is what really what we wanted. But some of the investors sort of had fallen in love with the idea of the returns of the, um, the housing development or the housing involved. And even though at the time they talked about the golf being the most important, as it turned out, what really became the most important was making money off housing. So those guys disappeared and then there was no one really left to push it along. And so we... You know, we tried to find some other investors and try people and, you know, we, we almost got there with some guys. But at the end of the day, it's like it's a passion project and we're running up against the permits expiring. And I basically just said to a friend of mine, I'm like, well, we can't, we can't let this go. We just have to find a way to make it work. So I just took it all over and we bought everyone out and uh, just willed it through, really. You know, we got substantial commencement and now we've just been you know, plodding along ever since. It, it wasn't like um, the money was always sitting there ready to go and off you go. It, it's, been, uh, it's been hard work. Even being you know, one of the most anticipated developments or talked about developments, it still doesn't mean there's just people throwing money at you from left, right and center. You've still got to, mm. you know, it's, it's still hard work. Yeah. And so then how did you come to choose Mike Clayton and Mike DeVries to design the course for you? Well, Clayton, I'd known Clayton, you know, my whole playing career. He knew, you know, obviously knew my mum. He used to caddy for Louise Bryce when they used to play against each other back in amateur golf back in the early 80s. Um, when um, my grandfather and his golf buddy, Alf Goff, were big supporters of Australian the Australian tour, really, they'd go to all the tournaments, they'd help out guys, guys would come and stay at their house when they played the Tassie Open, they're always sort of, you know, giving advice or a few dollars to a few players when they needed it and all that sort of stuff. So it was interesting when my when I turned pro, the week before my first tournament, I was up in, uh, I was playing Q school up in, um, in Asia and my grandfather died in a car accident and it was pretty devastating at the time. And I remember I had an invite into the Vines the tournament there in, in Perth. Yeah, it was in Perth at the Vines. And you know, I didn't really want to play, but, you know, you sort of get convinced by your family and everyone like, well, this is what your yeah. grandfather, you loved your golf. This is what he wants you to do, go and play. So I go and play. I remember just getting there on the range on Monday and just trying to hit a few balls. And Clates was the first one that came up to me and said that, um, you know, sorry, your grandfather was such an awesome guy. And like, he, I didn't know, like, Clates, I didn't know Clates then at the time. But he went out of his way and I knew him as a golfer. Do you know what I mean? As like a really good player and a guy to look up to and all that sort of stuff. And one of mm -hmm. the guys on the Australian tour was winning tournaments. But he was um, very gracious and said, you know, some pretty nice things about my grandfather. 
So that always, and he was always very supportive of me in his way. You know how Clates can be. It's just like, what the hell are you doing shooting 74 swing? Like, shit, you know, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. Um, you know <laughs> how he can be. But so when, um, when it came to actually seriously looking at having someone build a golf course, I was obviously new, Mike. And I needed someone to come down and have a look because I was meeting with the premier and I just couldn't go in there without, I, I didn't have the hubris to think that I could tell the premier that it's a great piece of land for golf when I've never built a golf course. I know anything about building a golf course. So obviously Clates had been involved in Barn Beagle Dunes at the time. And I just wanted him to come down and have a look and make sure I didn't, I wasn't like, you know, hallucinating, you know, just, just because you play golf doesn't mean you actually have any, any idea of what actually goes into what makes a site great, the work that's involved, the things that need to be there in place to make it successful. So I don't have any, um, any belief I knew any of those things. So I brought him down. He came down for a day. Um, we wandered around, you know, all day for two days. And that's when he, um, and you might have to edit this out, but that's when we were leaving. He sort of made that famous quote where he, uh, I said, well, what do you think? Do you think it could work? And he said, well, if we fucked it up, it'd still be the second best course in Australia. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, yeah. he's had a big smile on his face. So, you know, that guy, that was like, okay, so it's, so thumbs up. And then he came to the, um, he came to the meeting. And, Did uh, he tell the premier that? No, no, no. He just sat there. Didn't say anything, actually. Everyone just let me talk and that was it. I'm like, what did I bring you blokes along for? Um, and then, um, yeah, so then it was just a no-brainer from there. Like, Clates was always going to be um, in the project. Like, I'm, I'm a very loyal person and I just thought that was what, you know, Clates was going to be there. He was the one doing it. So then it was, at the time, it was Mike Clayton Golf. Um, and it was actually, I was talking, we were talking about this the other day and he, uh, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I remember that. Oh, I said, well, you do realise I sent you an email in October. You didn't respond till December so you couldn't have been that keen about it <laughs> took you a few months because I've still got the email yeah and so even through the transition of OC and then OC CM and then back to OCM without Clays he was the guy who came down you know on his own dime spent a couple of days was there with me with the premier and um, sort of held my hand through the process and so there's no way he wasn't going to be involved so and then the the you know, being with DeVries, I, I was obviously familiar with Kate Wickham. I hadn't really seen much of his stuff in um, in person in uh, in Michigan, or but I'd, I'd heard a lot of people talk about it and rave about it. But the main uh, in my when Mike came down and had a look, the interesting talking to him was just a he'd be, he's like basically I haven't I don't build golf courses with these thirty forty million dollar budgets. He said I've built golf courses with you know whatever we can scrape together. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to waste your money, basically. So he's very budget conscious, which, um, which is important, right? Because, you know, we don't have unlimited money down here. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was that he was going to be there on site. He's just like, I'm coming down. I'm going to be there. I do all the shaping. I do all the, I do everything. So I'm just going to be there every day. And that, that just gave me the confidence to be like, okay, well, he's going to be there on site all the, all the time. I don't need all this extra stuff. I don't need another project manager and another, like he's going to be there taking care of it, doing the work um, and communicating when things need to happen or what needs to happen. So he's sort of like the project manager or co-project manager with me, um, which just made the decision 
Well, I mean, I was always going to use Clates, as I said, but the, the, the partnership there just seemed to be perfect. Yeah, and him being on site all the time de-risks, I guess, the fact that you can't oh. be. There's yeah, so much 100%. less Chinese whispers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it's amazing. And he loves he loves to work on that dozer. He just loves it. He'd just be out there all day. And I think he was very – and, you know, I, I, in fairness, the site um, brings that out of people. I mean, it is, it is pretty, it is spectacular. Um, it, it is sand. It is, the landforms are pretty crazy and not what you would normally see. So it, let, so it lets the imagination run wild a little bit. Um, and so I'm sure all those sort of things, I mean, you'd have to talk to him, but I'm sure a lot of those things just make the days more exciting knowing what, you know, what you can create down there. A little bit that we've seen online now that, fairways are green and, and not sand, they must excite him, Lucas, Anthony and, and their colleagues more than more than they excite us looking on our phones because it the visuals are incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the opposite because they're in the thick of it. They're dealing with the problems. They're dealing with the daily, oh, this hasn't taken or we're having problems with this or this idiot, you know, took a dirt bike over and trashed one of the greens or trashed a whole bunch of holes and the heartbreak that goes along with that or the wind erosion here or, you know, or there's all the, all just the, the day-to-day stuff that comes up, which takes you out of the big picture. Um, and I also think, it, you know, Clates has talked about this where once you've been down there a bunch of times, it's almost like the water just fades away and just the grandness of the property that you sort of take it for granted and you start to forgetting how spectacular it is. And then you bring someone down there who's never. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of an illusion too, because when you drive in, it's dead flat, smothered in pine trees, and you, you've seen the pictures and you've heard the hype. You're like, well, this is it. This is kind of crappy. And then just out of nowhere, this massive dune appears, um, and you can't see anything behind it. You you you, can't, you don't know there's a golf course there. You have no idea. Um, and you stagger to the top of the dune and then all of a sudden there's these massive sand dunes and it just looks like it goes on forever. Um, so it's like, a, it's like a perfect illusion to, to have the maximum effect on, you know, on what it could look like. So it's like if you go to the sand hills in, um, in Nebraska, you drive out there and for the five hours you're driving out there, you're going, well, that could be awesome. Why don't they have a course here? Why don't they have a course there? And the whole time you're driving out, you, you know what it's going to look like. Yeah. While um, it's it's really a bit of a mind trick, this weird landform, because there's nothing for the three kilometres drive in suggests there's big sand dunes. Yeah, and I think it's that that too, that whole reveal, in, you're looking at those, and the Sandhills Drive is a perfect example, but even driving into the National Golf Club on the Mornington, you're looking at this land and you're thinking, oh, my God, golf, 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 and you think that you've imagined how good it's going to be when you finally see the golf course. But then when you see actual golf over that type of land, there's just this kind of new elevation of excitement of what it looks like and that it's, and I think it just goes beyond our, our capacity to imagine without, you know, we have to see it and then it just blows you away when you actually see golf holes coupled with that yeah. terrain. Yeah, and this is sort of, you know, you, you, you're taking that to 11 down there because it just, you just don't expect it. And, and, and like everyone, all the locals, they're, they all are just as shocked and like and they might have grown up down there and spent hours on the beach or but they you just don't you're not expecting 
um, 20 meter high sand dunes um, down there. You just, mm. you just don't expect it. And and I guess marrying back into what we were talking about initially around social media, I'm really curious about how you're managing the the management of expectations and that you do want people when they finally come to play the course to be blown away by what they see, you know, in real life versus what they've seen on social media. How do you, what's your strategy, I guess, to to limit content or to present content in such a way on social media that it builds hype for the course and enthusiasm in the market, but that it doesn't give everything away and create maybe, you know, that, that, oh my God moment gets, gets nullified a bit. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've hit the, I mean, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. It's exactly what we're doing. I'm, I'm intentionally not showing holes that have been built or that have had stuff done to them just to, um, just to show the same sort of little loop, three or four holes over and over again as they progress and then save stuff for IRL, as they like to say. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's an interesting because you, you don't want to reveal everything, I don't think. It's like the mystique around the Masters. It's like when you couldn't yeah. see the front nine, all you wanted to know was like, what does the front nine look like? And okay, so we saw it. That's cool. But is it better that we saw it? I don't know. Probably not. Yeah, it's a great example. What do you think will surprise people about the course when it opens for play? Um, just, just what I, the scale, the scale. I, I think it's it's quite uh, it's quite shocking. That that'll be the main one. I mean, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. I mean, you know, you'll open. Hopefully, someone will come down and play, and hopefully, we're open long enough for enough people to play and <laughs> decide that it's really cool, and you know, we'll we'll get more feedback on that. But that's what always shocks me is just the scale of it, because it's not it's not on hundreds and hundreds of acres like you know it, it's not a like it's a big site but we haven't taken up all of it and if, when you measure it it's not as big as what you think it is or what we think it is looking at it so it, it, it's a bit of an optical illusion and there's seven holes currently grassed matt and one where construction's sort of still in the early stages um we've got yeah so one two 13 14 16 17 and 18 are all grassed um 15's finished, um, about to be grassed when DeVries gets. So when DeVries gets back, he'll go back and touch up um, 15, uh, 10's done. So they'll get grassed pretty much immediately. And, then, and, the, and the irrigation's in. The irrigation's now in on, uh, oh, they finished 12 as well. The irrigation's in on 12, I think, and the irrigation's now in on 11. So there's pretty much only, um, so three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine don't have any irrigation on them, but they're all, all those holes are bulk shaped and pretty much done except for um, sort of um, finish shaping around the greens and a few features. Five is the only one that hasn't had anything done to it. It's cleared, um, but, but nothing's really been done. And six is about halfway done. So when he gets back in in next week or the week after they'll be sort of pushing they've, they've been installing irrigation while he's been away and kind of leaving the heads a little bit high to get the final setting height and all that sort of stuff when he gets down there but yeah they'll be they'll be into it and grassing pretty quickly and hopefully all that's done kind of by the end of march early april and then you know you're looking to open within 12 months and and fescue grasses across the entire course yeah yeah, different different blends of fescue and the fairways and the greens, but it's all fescue. It, it is interesting because we, we talked about this a lot. 
because such a perfect bent grass climate, right? If you're going to pick somewhere in the world to grow bent grass, you'd pick probably, you know, Hobart. So in a way, a lot of the new courses, you know, that have been built, whether it's Barn Bugle or whether it's Band, and like they're all fescue and, and, and sometimes the greens are, you know, like they always like this, when everyone says the greens, like, you know, geez, they root, they, they, they roll through. You're like, okay, so they look crap, but, you know, if you kind of hit it online, they'll go in. Um, and you hear that a lot, especially about Barn Bugle dunes and stuff. You don't go up there and think, wow, this, these greens are pure. So I was, as I kind of said to Anthony, I'm like, well, if you show me a pure fescue green, that, that is awesome. Maybe you'll convince me. Um, and he's like, it, he was very adamant that we'll, either way, um, you can have a great putting surface. But uh, I guess really the the main decision was around well, you, what DeVries wants to do on the greens and the sort of the more interesting things you want to do. Once you start getting into bent and people start getting into the well, no one likes slow bent greens, you know. Everyone loves a bent green when it's running at 12, but they hate them when they're running at nine. Um, and, you know, to, to build a really fun, interesting golf course, you probably want the greens running at around nine or 10, you know, to put the fun slopes on them. And so it's kind of that, that compromise you feel like you've got to make. It's like, well, no one's going to want a slow bent green and I don't want to build big, flat, boring greens either. So um, hmm. the decision was to go wall to wall fescue. And that dry climate you've got, in Hobart, marries well with fescue and poa not becoming a problem. I know in Bandon, you know, the the older courses are kind of almost all poa greens now because of how wet it is there. But with Hobart being a really dry city, it feels like that fescue will be able to, you know, fight for dominance on the greens. It'll be interesting, term. actually, because there aren't any fescue courses, really. Um, in Like all the, like Royal and Tassie and, and all of those have been basically overrun with poa. We'll just have to keep all the members from Royal off, won't we, with their shoes? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you remember Royal, we'll have to put you through the wash bay first before you go out on our course. Now, I think a lot of that has, um, if you talk to um, if you talk to green keepers, they're always, you know, it's always more to do with the management than it is the, um, well, that's their belief, you know what I mean? That, you know, it's, like, it's like when you build a house or the, the next contractor always complains about the contractor before, you know, yeah. doing everything wrong. It's kind of the same with green keepers. It's always like, well, if you had it done this, you wouldn't have had that problem. Um, so we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> we'll put Tui to the test. Is there, a, is there a risk with a world top 50 golfer developing the project, two touring pros and a decorated amateur who's played major tournaments on the design team that maybe there's shots or holes that you guys conceive that the lesser player isn't up to is there a risk that things are too hard or is that is that also part of DeVries's job to to be the everyman golfer on the on the crew well that 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 the last point is the point is that the guy building the golf course and the guy basically running it is not an ex-touring pro or mm-hmm. an elite amateur. Um, now he talks a lot about that, and it's and we. Um, it's actually interesting when you sort of talk to DeVries about it. You kind of want to make it easy four, difficult three. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Should be, there should be a bailout, and the guy just wants to putt it up, but it's an extremely difficult chip to get up and down. I mean, I guess um, ten at um, Yarra Yarra isn't a bad example, right? Now it's a short hole, not much going on tough brutal green to try and pitch to 
And if you drive it and hit it left, right, or long, you're not on the green. It's um, it's a really difficult hole to make three on. But like, if you're just an average golfer, I mean, if you sort of putt it down there and, and don't try and make a four, it's an easy five. But as soon as you try and make a four, well, that's when you make your, your sixes and sevens and all that sort of stuff. So I think that seems to be um, the ethos behind, you know, Mike's uh, design down there is like, there's always going to be a, a play. Like there's going to be shots you have to hit if you're a good player, but for everyone else, if you don't take too much on, there's always, there's always a place, a safer way to play. But we're going to make you. There is some. There are some very demanding shots out there for sure, mm. for sure. Um, you mentioned that when when Mike Clayton and Mike DeVries partnered up, you weren't familiar with with DeVries's courses in Michigan and whatnot. Have you been up since then to see places like um, Kingsley and Grey Walls and some of the other stuff he's done? Well, no, I wanted to go up last um, last summer. Um, obviously, COVID made that impossible there for a while. Yeah. Um, and then when I wanted to go up there last summer, um, he was down in Australia and I had to, so I wanted to go down and help out down there. So hopefully this year I'll get to go up because I've seen so much and heard so much about it. It'll be, it'll be interesting to actually go and play those, having spent so much time with him and heard what he has to say about what, what he's always trying to do and what, what gets him going as a, as, a, as a shaper and then also as an architect. It'll be interesting to see the sort of evolution, I guess, of some of his earlier projects coming through to probably his last couple, which, you know, with Kate Wickham and now Seven Mile Beach, um, just how, how guys progress and how their ideas germinate. He did some great work at the Meadow Club north of San Francisco, did some restorative work there some years ago. Did he grow up playing at Crystal Downs? Yeah. He uh, yeah, he grew up caddying there, I believe, yeah. Okay. Now, it's been 50 years, well, 51 years since the first and most recent Time and Aussie Open was held in Hobart. Is as a, as a born and bred Hobart guy, is that bringing the Aussie Open back to Hobart a specific goal for Seven Mile Beach? Is it just kind of a nice, happy thing if it happens one day? Um, I would love to have a major tournament down there for sure. And I think if, you know, with Five Mile Beach and the potential of that and, and everything, where golf is heading, you know, having a venue that's capable, A, of holding a, you know, a, a good test for the world, you know, for some of the best players in the world, but also to have a venue big enough to where you can have 36 holes and you can have men's and women's tournaments and all ability events on at the same time. I think, um, you know, and the Australian Open should move around. I'm going to jump on Clayton's bandwagon there a little bit. I know he's always banging on about that, but he's right. I mean, it should move around a bit. I mean, you can be there in Melbourne, four years and then skip off somewhere for a year or, or move around the country. It is the National Open after all. I'd love to put a hand up to have it. It'd be great. It feels like Hobart as a city has grown up a lot in the last, say, 10, 15 years. And is there a feeling in Hobart now that, like, yes, we can and yes, we should and we are, you know, we have merit <laughs> as, yeah, as a big city, even though we don't have a big population. It feels like there's a confidence around Hobart that maybe wasn't there 15 years ago. Mm. Yeah, it's the monification, right? Yeah. It's, um, it's basically one guy. He, he's changed Hobart. I would say in general, there's still the attitude. I always say it's like the why would you? Like you ask someone, oh, I wanted to build this amazing golf course. Well, why would you want to do that? I want to go you know, play golf in America. Why would you want to do that? You know, 
I want to move to Melbourne. Why would you want to move to Melbourne? You know, it's just insane that the number of times someone asks you that question. It's just like, well, you know, why would you want to do that? Um, so it's always a bit of a joke. But I think Mona, just it just changed tourism in Tasmania. And then Tassie got discovered, specifically Hobart, really. And then from out of there, like more of the rural stuff and the really beautiful landscapes and the farms and sort of stuff outside of Hobart and the East Coast. Yeah, I mean... Like Bridport and Barn Boogle Dunes is very uh, particular type of tourism where people go there and that's all they do. If they go there, they play golf, they don't do anything else. They don't leave Lost Farm or the or Barn Boogle, wherever they're staying, and then they go home. <clears throat> they don't head off on day trips. They don't go down the East Coast. They don't go down the wine region or any of that. While um, Mona... Like before Mona, there was no private jets ever flying into Hobart Airport. That just didn't happen. Now you have private jets flying in there. So you have, you know, people from all over the world know um, um, know about Mona and they want to come down, they want to see it. So it's just, you know, the occupancy rates in hotels is around 80% in Hobart and the weekends, and that's all year. And the weekends are pretty much fully booked all year. Like you can't get a, a room on a Friday or Saturday night for the full 12 months. So it's just been insane what it's done. And then, you know, and I also think um, the GFC had a big impact. The people all of a sudden couldn't go or less people were affording to go on their international trips because international trips were pretty cheap. But then it was just, you know, unachievable for a lot of people. And they started looking around Australia a little bit and doing shorter trips. And it, it seemed to line up that with, when Mona opened around then and the, coming out of the, the GFC, a lot of people started travelling down to Tassie. And then it took us a while, I reckon, to actually catch up. To We talked a, a big game about, you know, sort of doing, you know, whether it was King Island cheese, these sort of like high-end bespoke or boutique experiences that, you know, we're going to be top quality food. But we, we didn't actually, we talked that, but we didn't have any good restaurants. We didn't have any any um, amazing produce really apart from a couple of products but that very rapidly caught up now yeah you do have amazing restaurants you can go to Hobart and go to uh, an amazing restaurant you can get amazing produce you can you can go to one of the best museums in the world and obviously with the opportunity to have a football team now and a stadium in the water I think that has the ability to just transform Hobart you know, another level because it's an opportunity that I, I think it's the biggest thing that could possibly happen to Hobart ever, to be honest, <laughs> to get off golf. I can't think of another thing that could uh, that could drive economic development and visitor and, and business than having an AFL franchise in your, in your city. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, Hobart's changed a lot from when I grew up. Yeah. And, I mean, you say all that without even mentioning, you know, being very humble that potentially one of the best ex golf courses in the world as well, you know, will be a significant pillar in that, in that appeal. Yeah. I mean, I've been obviously with, with what we hoped looking at the, the topographical maps, right. You look at the maps, you know, you've got great land and you know, you've got, you know, you're near the beach and you're near the airport. So, okay. Tick, tick, tick. Then um, you clear the trees and it just became like, Oh wow, this, not only is you couldn't tell when you're wandering around because you're slogging through these pine trees and these massive sand dunes, you couldn't get a feel. You, you'd get lost. Like you, honestly, you'd be 
50 meters from each other and then you're gone. Like you might not see that person for the rest of the day because it's just the way it was so disorientated. And then when you cleared the trees off and you stood on that top dune and looked across, you're just like, wow, I had no, there was no expectation that you would ever see the water. And now you have these amazing views, you know, out over the bay to the mountain. We're able to frame shots off the mountain, frame shots over like rocks out in the, in the bay where, the, where, the, where there's some spray and, and like and all these sorts of things that now become real visual features, which are kind of like the cherry on top of a good golf hole, right? I mean, you know, you can have a fantastic golf hole, but if you stick a little, you know, a little rock out in the water and you can see the spray coming off and it's just like, oh, wow, magical. Um, so all those sorts of things are there now. And then you always sort of see, you know, just through my experience playing golf, even great golf courses, there's always sections of courses where you're like, oh, okay, you don't expect that to be very good or that's an average hole or, or whatever. And then as things have come out of the ground and you see the, just the talent, that DeVries has and the, and the eye that Clates has, that these guys have, it's like it's staggering how much better that it is than I thought it was going to be. Now, I had really high hopes, but it, it really is spectacular and you don't expect it. That, that was the whole thing. At no point did I expect it to be. It, it's, it's better than my expectations. I had high expectations. Now, does that mean it's going to be number X in the world? I have no idea. I just know that from what I thought it could be, and seeing the progress each month I go down there, I'm always shocked that like, well, it's a much better hole than I thought it was going to be. Like, wow, look what they've done here. I wouldn't have expected it to be that good. You know what I mean? When you see it come out of the ground. So it's exciting as far as that goes. Well, now what other people think and, and, you know, and all that sort of stuff, who knows, but it's, um, yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, it, it, put it this way, it's exceeding my expectations. And um, I think it's going to be a fun place to go to. Even as you say that, it makes me realize you're, there's almost this feature of you only being able to visit, as you said, maybe every six weeks in that if you're on site every day, you potentially don't get those, those old wows, but you're almost a test case for the paying golfer who's going to come and play that you're turning up and the place is significantly different to how you left it and you get to have that old wow moment yourself. Yeah, and a lot of, and it's even the detail stuff where it's like you can see a whole, you know, it's shaped, you can see the main features and it's been there and you know exactly what it's going to look like. And then um, the bunker gets built and then you see, or, you know, the green gets built and it comes out of the ground. And you're like, wow, that's actually, and then you stand like, oh, that's cooler than what I thought it was going to be. Not that I had actually any thought of what it was going to be. It's not like I sat there like, well, they're going to do a nice little knoll green here and this will be the Redan and we're going to do this, you know. Um, it's, I, I can't even conceive what it's going to be. Uh, as opposed to just what the sand is just laying there. It's like, well, that looks like a cool green just there. Just grasp that. And then they might, you know, spend a day or two messing around. And he starts explaining his concepts. And then you look at it a month later when the concept has been talked about, messed around with, changed, and then, then it's done. And there's so many little things that once it's been, like, I guess if you had the designer there telling you all the time exactly what you're supposed to be looking for, you probably think every golf course is better than what it is because there's so much you miss when you play, like what he was trying to do. Or it's just like, why is that there? That shouldn't be there. Or you just walk past some feature that had no thought. But when the guy's standing there telling you, like, okay, this is here because of this, that's framing that, that's why we wanted this hole to go that way. Like, oh, wow, what a genius. Maybe it goes, yeah, you know, it, it, it makes it uh, you know, better than what in your own head than what it actually is. But 
Yeah, it's it's an amazing um, it's an amazing to watch them work. It really is. It really is interesting. And you'll get to see it again a little further north on the Five Mile Beach site. Uh, second course a little further north of Seven Mile Beach, and you've drawn comparisons to the Irish coast with Seven Mile and Scottish land with Five Mile in terms of topography. Yeah, I mean, I would. I always felt like Seven Mile was a bit like Valley Bunyan. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe even Valley Bunyan U. In certain okay. sections, um, it has some really big, big dunes, big movement, you know, really spectacular. So that that's sort of like, because I mean, obviously a lot of the Northern Irish golf courses, the sort of the Ring of Kerry, the ones down on the West Coast there are kind of in the bigger dunes. While Five Mile, so, so you basically have the hand the Bay, which is where you get the main, um, the main wave activity. And the backside is more of a lagoon, I guess you would say. I mean, there is a lagoon, but it's, it's sort of a, an inlet um, waterway but this huge dune stops right in the middle of the site and then basically goes down to nothing so that's why it feels weird because you stand on so when you're playing three and you look down you look down 30 meters directly below you and there'll be a hole on five mile right underneath you and then five mile goes across these sort of six seven eight nine meter dunes and it, it, it really looks like you wouldn't have to do anything you know, you'd literally not move anything, just build features and tees and greens because the land is, is a lot more subtle and there's obvious corridors and there's things to play over. And while the big end of, um, of Seven Mile Beach had a lot of work to be done just because we, to originally we weren't going to have any golf in it. It just looked like it was too big, too hard. But then when you cleared the trees and looked at it, it's like, no, no, we've got to go. You know, they're, they're pretty adamant. We have to go up here. This is just too good up here sand will deal with it type thing and i mean when you say it's north i mean it's literally if you hook it off the first tee you're on five mile like that's how close they are they'll um they'll be right next door to each other you know i'd imagine a couple of holes in there so it'll be really interesting to be able to put two very different styles of property um right next door to each other and see what uh see what comes out of it really from you know different architects and different designers and all that sort of stuff. And so how do you, uh, that process of having different designers and different architects on a neighbouring course, how do you, how do you as a project manager and the, and the, and the visionary behind all of this, how do you handle that? Um, it's just, you know, seeing other people's work and, you know, trying to find the person the land might suit really, and then keep it a secret and for as long as you can. <laughs> What um, what sort of drives? I mean, and and granted, you're not you're not Mike Kaiser at Bandon Dunes, and you're not Pinehurst Resort, but these these modern developments that have quickly gone to thirty six holes and then often more, you know, they've tended to hire the same group of very established architects, and you can understand, you know, with all the risk that goes into a golf development, why why they would make those decisions and they'd choose, you know, Hans, Doak, Corin Crenshaw, David McClay, Kidd. That's kind of, that's the four courses on the menu. But, you know, we saw last week when Pinehurst announced the number 10 course, there was there was a little bit of grumbling and pushback from within the golf community saying, you know, Tom Doak got that work. It would have been great to see an up-and-coming architect get the job and get an opportunity. Yeah. How do you yeah. How do you marry those two sort of, knowing that if you go to person X, 
the the outcome is is probably a little bit more certain and safe but then there's this excitement of you know a new architect yeah, getting yeah. A, a rip like mcclay kid did with band and dunes all those years ago which is interesting right because when kaiser started to your point like mcclay kid you know wasn't exactly you know the safe bet right um and maybe mike fancied himself a lot more as a designer than what we all you know mm. what we what he led on and actually wanted to have someone that he could sort of stand over a bit and say look this is what i want to do we're going to do this this and this i, I don't know but um and then uh, i mean doke probably wasn't you know a sure bet either i mean I, i'm not 100 percent sure I, I know he had um he'd, he'd done quite a bit of work but i i still don't think he was you know doesn't certainly doesn't have the reputation he has now and core crenshaw a little different obviously sand hills changed everything yeah so you kind of i mean i don't know you look i, I sort of look at how kaiser did it. well he got people who were every golf architect will say that every client says to them that this project's going to change your life this is going to put you on the map our property is going to do this, this, and, this. Um, and it's a bit of a cliche but if you haven't got a good site you feel like finding someone who really um it's not just another project you know it's something really important to them because you want it to be as important to them as what it is to you so yeah so with you know with cdp just starting really and obviously having the history it had with clades they were really keen to be like no this is you know this is going to be our first project um we're all in and that mm. was really important and uh that just made the decision decision so easy and i mean you know clates on on google and 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 mike on cape wickham i mean the work is awesome right mm. like heck, i mean you know you're not exactly it's not an unknown quantity um yeah so I, i'm not sure why kaiser now just basically it feels like they just rotate the same guys all the time and have gotten away from maybe finding someone young and keen who's willing to spend, you know, the, the, the total dedication that this is the only thing I've got going on. I mean, I think, um, I, I don't know, I heard Bill Core was like basically at Sandhills for two years or something, which is just, you know, it's incredible. Um, they just don't have the time to do that. They're too much in demand. So, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Um, I definitely sort of think more along the lines of I want to find someone who this will be a big deal for them at this point in their career. And they might be established. They might have a few good courses that you might know them, but they might not have had a, um, an opportunity like this. I think there's a few guys out there at this time in, um, in golf design that sort of fit that description as well. A couple that might be unknown names to a few listening to the podcast, but some who are really involved in architecture and, and study it and read about it. There's, there's a, there's a good crop of, of young talented practitioners out there who would, Oh God, I'm sure they'd give their right arm at work. On yeah. I mean, as, as Bill core sort of talks about Sand Hill, he said it like he was 40, I think, and had been shaping for 15 years or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. He was, instead of, you know, it's that old cliche. It took me 20 years to become an overnight success. So, so it's not that you're just hiring someone who, you know, doesn't have any experience. You know what I mean? There's sort of like that balance between they've got to have, you know, skin in the game before, I would say. 
Um, we might finish up with a little bit on your playing career. You've been extremely generous with us with time and I'm conscious we've got to let you go on your Saturday night. That's all right. Happy to be I... the most anticipated guest starting the year. It's just, <laughs> what an honour. <laughs> I was I curious. Better not listen to the re- I, can't, I better not listen to any more podcasts and hear you saying, you know what we're really looking forward to? We're really looking forward to having you this year. It's like these guys. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody's our best girl. Yeah, exactly. Any um, guest is, is That's is, it. Is if great. anyone will spend an hour with us, they're our favourite for that week. Uh, I was curious doing some research on your career it jumped out off the page to me on your OWGR that even in the years when you didn't have great results in the USA, you seem to come home and just top five left, right and center at the big three Aussie events. And I was wondering, like, is that you were just grateful to be home and you loved being here? Was it that the fields here are shallower and finishing higher is easier? Bit of both. Like what's the, the reason? Yeah, I that? think it's always nice to come home. Here. It's all, well, it's it's nice to come home. You definitely, you know, I'll put it in the respect of, so guys play well on the Corn Ferry Tour every year. You know what I mean? They'll go out there and they'll blitz. Um, and then the very next year, they're back down there again. And then they blitz. And then they, the very next year, they go back down there again. And they're not able to transition that, um, you know, like why can't you play like, you think there's another level you've got to go to. And conversely, when they go from the PJ Tour back to the Corn Ferry Tour, they have that attitude. It's just like, well, I'm better than all these guys. I, I'm i just going to take care of business down here. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a little bit of that, where you come off playing the PGA Tour, and even if you haven't played well, it's just like, well, I'm a PGA Tour player. Like, these guys aren't PGA Tour players. You know what I mean? You have that sort of attitude about you. And it's amazing how, you know, I mean, golf mental. It's just confidence. And, you know, when I talk to players or younger guys, like if you can win on the Corn Ferry Tour or if you can win on the Australian Tour or anything like that, you can win anywhere in the world. You can win the biggest tournaments in the world. It's just that can you be as comfortable as you are the week of a regular Aussie Tour event when you're at a major? And the answer is probably not. It's really difficult. It's very difficult to get to a major and not just feel all the energy and all the buzz and all the extra people, all the people inside the ropes all that sort of stuff and just the more intent you're at a practice round and you know, you make sure you play with Adam Scott and Jeff Ogilvy so you don't have to sign a thousand autographs because you can just like hide behind them because if you just go out on your own, they're going to pester you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and there's all that sort of stuff where it just like the whole week is so intense. You can't possibly relax. Then you get back and play Coolum or something or the Australian Open and you're completely relaxed the whole week. And that's really the difference is like, it's not whether you. It's not that you're playing. You're, you're you think you're playing better, but you're just playing at your level. It's just that when you're playing in those big tournaments, you don't play at your level because you're not relaxed, and that's that's really what it all comes down to. Now, interested on your perspective on something that's a bit of a pet bugbear of mine. It's a long question, so bear with me. Um, so, some Americans have an issue with tours around the world, like Europe and Japan and Australia, having received inflated OWGR points relative to the strength of the field. So like having a a baseline amount of points they get that might be over and above what the field dictates. But then, you know, I look at how much top line golf from college golf and corn ferry through to three of the four majors and three of the four WGCs are in America. There's this predominance of golf that favors being American and being comfortable playing in America. 
I'm just curious how you, as someone who came from one of the remote, uh, most remote places on earth to succeed on the PGA Tour, how you see that that competition between the aspects of professional golf that do benefit those playing on the smaller tours versus, I guess, the factor that Americans do have an easier run at, you know, being comfortable playing on the bigger stages because the bigger stage is in their backyard. Yeah, it's probably more that it's not that the the big tournaments have um, too many points and, you know, there's a few inflated tournaments on the Australian tour. It's that the crap tournaments have too many points in America where, you know, a lot of those fields, whether they're, you know, where hardly anyone's playing, when you're getting down to like, oh, you know, some guy who made 150 cuts and there was always Lance, you know, he was catting for Jesper in the morning and playing in the afternoon and he was like 50-something. Um, he couldn't get on the senior tour, but he'd get into San Antonio or some tournament like that. It's it's probably the, the floor that's the problem that creates the um, the inequality. Yeah, it makes it very American-centric. They basically say, well, this is the strongest tour. Look at these events. So, okay, we bring up the floor to, well, you can't, you know, um, have a the minimum number is way higher than, you know, a tournament in Australia. And you'd argue that a lot of the times the Australian Open probably was a better field than some of the US tour events. When you looked at the players, you know what I mean? Like when you yeah. really looked at the players, um, just, just, you know, and there's also this sort of um, uh, idea that because you're on the PGA tour, there's not a thousand other guys who can play on that tour because there are. You yeah. know, it's there's 30 guys, 30 or 40 guys who really are dominant, a step above. You know what I mean? They look like men playing with boys at junior football. You know, you pick that guy and go, well, he's really good. You know, <laughs> well, everyone else, like some of those guys will make the AFL, but there's one guy you know, right? So there might be 20 or 30 guys like that when you watch when you watch the guys on tour where you're just like, no, he, they just, they're just better. You know, they've, they've worked it out. Everyone else is just at their stage in their career or different times where they're confident or something's running hot or they're feeling comfortable or in a good groove and all that sort of stuff. And you're pretty much interchangeable with another thousand people on the planet. It's just that they only give out a certain number of cards. So I think it's kind of the floor is probably more the issue than actually the Australian tournaments getting too many points. It's just that probably some of the average tournaments in America just by default got too many points. Yeah. Which is looking but like I mean, it's, it's interesting change. with the change now, um, you know, obviously that's been a bit of a controversy and it does seem a little outrageous. <laughs> you know, you're basically going to end up, and they shouldn't mean anything. They, 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 they used to not mean anything. I mean, I think the system where we'll take top 30 from Europe, top 30 from America, anyone who's won a tournament and, you know, a few other invitees or we'll take the first five from the Australian tour or top two from Japan or whatever it is, that's probably a better way to do it, let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Thank you for your time. Yeah, no worries. No worries. It's been brilliant to talk, Matt. Thanks so much. Yeah, I thought I was pumped about Seven Mile Beach before we spoke to you, and now <laughs> well, I'm kind of sitting here. I mean, it's all. I mean, I try not to over. Like, I'm very cognizant of like uh, of overhyping it, but I can only talk about it in you know the way you like. Your expectations are high, but then like I'm shocked at how much better it is than I thought it could be. Now, maybe that's just because I have don't have the experience to see a golf course come out of nothing, but it's like. Every hole is like, this is brilliant. I'm like, but that last four holes were brilliant. It's like, well, I keep saying, there's got to be a shit hole out here, Clay. It's like, when's going to be the bad run? You know, when's <laughs> going to be the crappy? 
you know, but so far they all feel like really, really good. So, and then it just comes down to getting the details right. There's so much that goes in. I mean, I kind of harp on this or stay awake at night thinking about, well, you know, building a good golf course, a great golf course, great. But now you've got to build a great business so people get to play it. Because if it's not a great business, it'll yeah. just get shuttered and overrun, you know, with weeds and more pine trees within, you know, 10 years. So, you know, there's a lot to think about and get right. Yeah, it's fun, but it's also pretty stressful. <laughs> Very. Well, all the best with the next little things on the to-do list in terms of yeah, permitting no at Five Mile Beach and finishing work at seven. Oh, yeah, we'll just have to get everyone. We need to get everyone. You've got to make sure that everyone, when I say write in a letter, you've got to write in a letter or write in a thing because they, for some reason, that makes a difference. Um, uh, yeah, submissions. Well, we should, when those are submission. open, we should uh, push that <laughs> yeah, out through we'll socials. Get write the, a submission. Get the um, submission farm going in yes. uh, Estonia for me or something. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thanks, mate. Appreciate your time.